Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 71st episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Before we talk about today's episode, I have a huge favor to ask of each person listening in. If you like what we're doing, please make sure to send a $5 donation to... No, wait. I read the wrong script. Totally kidding. But for real, if you like this podcast, please go and give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening in from. Ratings seriously do help us continue to grow and share the word about what's going on here in North Carolina with more listeners from all over the world. So in case you've been living under a rock for the past few weeks, the big clean energy news in the state is Duke's recent filing of their draft carbon plan with the North Carolina Utilities Commission. On today's episode, we'll talk with a group of experts who will help us digest what's in the plan and where we go from here. But as always, before we get into the details, we've got a few updates to share. On the legislative front, a quick update that the North Carolina General Assembly just reconvened for the short session a few weeks ago. This comes off the heels of the longest legislative session in North Carolina's history that spilled into this calendar year. Given last year's long session and the upcoming midterm elections, we don't expect this short session will follow the same trend as last year and anticipate that this short session should wrap up fairly quick. But before it does, NCSEA is tracking a number of bills related to clean energy currently sitting down at the General Assembly, including some bills related to EVs, rooftop solar and HOAs, CPACE, a government building energy efficiency bill, and an RTO study bill. If any of these bills move forward this session, we'll be sure to provide updates on our next episode. You can always become a member of NCSEA to receive up-to-the-minute updates on any pending legislation in the state. I'll also include a link to an article from Energy News Network where Elizabeth Oots sums up some of the bills that are on the table right now. And on the topic of net metering, as you may recall, back towards the end of November, a settlement agreement was filed at the North Carolina Utilities Commission between Duke Energy and a number of clean energy advocates, including NCSEA, to propose a new incentive and rate structure for rooftop solar in the state. In case you want to hear the full details of that filed proposal, you can go back and listen to episode 61 of the podcast. In recent news, a group of residential solar installers reached an amended settlement proposal with Duke just filed at the North Carolina Utilities Commission, which builds off of the original foundation of the proposal filed back in November with an agreement to create a new bridge rate for solar customers, which would allow them to participate in monthly netting with additional exports back to the grid compensated at avoided cost. This would be an alternative to the proposed time-of-use rates originally proposed. Customers would be able to stay on this bridge rate structure for 15 years or until the North Carolina Utilities Commission approves an incentive surmounting to $0.60 a watt. And as a reminder for our listeners, both this amended proposal and the original proposal are still sitting in front of the commission, awaiting an order. So, this is all still pending approval. Once we hear anything back, We'll be sure to share it here. And quickly, to wrap up, NCSEA is hosting two upcoming events that may be of interest to our listeners in the state of North Carolina. First is our annual continuing legal education event. If you're a lawyer looking to fulfill your CLE credits, this event is a great way to cash in on six credit hours while actually hearing about information that pertains to your field. At the event, we'll be covering topics like gender equity issues in energy law, Solar Plus, FERC, the Carbon Plan, and you'll also hear directly from some of our utility commissioners here in the state. This event is open to non-lawyers as well. It's a great way to get the latest of what's going on in energy regulation and policy in the state. More information can be found via NCSEA's website and the link in the show notes. Lastly, NCSEA is hosting another edition of our Making Energy Work Network Policy Forum series, leading up to our Making Energy Work conference this fall. This next event will be taking place July 20th at Foothills Brewing in Winston-Salem and will be focused on the topic of today's episode, which is the Carbon Plan. So heads up to all our listeners in the triad, we want to see you out at this event. 
It's a great way to network and meet your fellow clean energy professionals. Again, more information can be found on our website and via the link in the show notes. On previous episodes, we've provided updates related to the legislatively mandated carbon plan to be drafted by the North Carolina Utilities Commission to create a roadmap for reaching 70% emission reductions by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050. As mentioned previously, Duke Energy filed their proposed draft plan to the commission on May 16th, and now interveners in the docket will have until July 16th to file comments and alternative modeling. So we've talked process, but we haven't spent much time talking substance. On today's episode, we're going to be diving into the meat of what was in Duke's proposed plan, what it could mean for ratepayers, and even the greater implications of what it may mean for some of our neighboring states. I did want to note that Duke was invited to the conversation today, but declined to participate. Okay, and with that, let's get into today's episode. Clean energy. We are lucky to be joined by three guests on today's episode of the podcast, each bringing a very unique perspective to the conversation around the topic of the carbon plan. Our first guest works to speed up the clean energy transformation in the Southeast through analysis and advocacy. She has expertise in renewable energy, energy efficiency, coal retirements, energy market modeling, and transmission. Prior to SACE, our guest advised energy companies and utilities as part of Navigant Consulting's energy practice. Our guest is the research director at the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy. Friends of the pod, please welcome Maggie Schober to the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. Maggie, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Happy to be here. And our next guest joined the North Carolina Justice Center back in February 2020. Prior to her work at the Justice Center, she helped implement renewable energy and energy savings programs to D.C. residents and businesses by providing market analysis and business solutions. Now our guest is focused on advocating for equitable solutions in the energy space as part of her role as energy policy advocate for the North Carolina Justice Center. Friends of the pod, please welcome Claire Williamson to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Claire, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, Matt. And our last guest on the podcast comes with years of energy experience as he previously was with the Arkansas Public Service Commission, where he served as an administrative law judge and helped implement an expansion of public utility funded energy efficiency programs. He's developed customer owned solar programs as well as transportation, water and energy policy. He's also had professional experience with Audubon, Arkansas, the California based Planning and Conservation League and U.S. Senator Ernest Hollings. Listeners, let's give a warm welcome to Eddie Moore, Energy Senior Program Director with the Coastal Conservation League. Eddie, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with all of you. Maggie, your organization is formally intervening in the carbon plan docket at the North Carolina Utilities Commission and is planning to reply before the July 16th deadline. So I think as a lot of folks know, Duke filed their proposed uh, draft on May 16th and Interveners have just about two months to turn around their own comments and modeling uh, before July 16th. Uh, but before we talk a little bit about that, can you uh, talk to us a little bit more about a blog post that SACE recently released outlining some of the concerns about the draft filed by Duke? So can you walk us through that plan as filed and what are some of the concerns that your organization has with it? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Great, A great place to start the conversation. Um, so... As, as you said, on May 16th, uh, Duke filed their proposed carbon plan, and we wrote a blog post um, because it's a, it's a very large document. It's actually several documents, and we wanted to give folks an idea of like where to you know, focus attention when looking at what is Duke proposing. And I think the best place to start is what is Duke asking the commission to approve? Uh, Duke is asking the commission to approve you know, this carbon plan, the way that they are proposing it. And specifically, uh, they're asking for Duke to approve uh, procurement of uh, 3,100 megawatts of solar, some of which has storage, uh, 1,600 megawatts of battery storage, um, 600 megawatts of offshore wind. Uh, they're also asking the commission uh, to approve Duke taking steps to look at uh, public policy transmission projects, uh, which is a really important thing I'll come back to in a minute. 
um, and to start the process uh, to get certificates of public convenience and necessity or CPCNs for two gas combustion turbines and one gas combined cycle, uh, which means a total of about 2000 megawatts of new gas that they would start in 2023. They would start the process in, in 2023. Um, and then finally, uh, they're also asking uh, the commission to approve initial activities uh, for Duke to work towards offshore wind and new nuclear, specifically small modular reactors and new pumped storage. Um, and a little bit of a change in the process, Duke is asking that its next uh, integrated resource plan or IRP be postponed until 2024. Uh, North Carolina usually has those every two years. Um, and the last one was filed in 2020. So Duke is asking that the, the IRP process be uh, postponed so that it aligns with the um, every two years that the carbon plan uh, is, is set to be updated. Other pieces uh, of note about what Duke has proposed is that they've put forward four different portfolios that are somewhat similar, except for the fact that only one of them actually meets the, the 2030 target that was lined up in HB 951. The rest of them delay that by two or four years. And, and that Duke has really had a, a missed opportunity in key um, clean energy resources, uh, such as one that SACE works on uh, very closely on energy efficiency. Duke picked an arbitrary number of 1% of eligible load. It's actually much less than 1% of retail sales um, and, and sort of set it at that and didn't you know, look more seriously at how you know, energy efficiency, which is a least cost resource, could actually help do more towards carbon reductions. But I said I'd come back to the transmission piece and I'll, I'll close my response with this, uh, which is that in Duke's filing, they have proposed uh, to look more proactively at transmission planning than, than they you know, ever have before. Uh, specifically, they have identified um, sort of a red zone that makes it hard for solar development um, and covers uh, parts of both North and South Carolina. And so Duke is, in my opinion, um, in this filing, Duke is admitting that proactive transmission planning is beneficial to ratepayers. We would agree to that. And, um, and we look forward to continuing the conversation about what proactive transmission planning looks like in the Carolinas. So it's evident uh, that, you know, your organization and the other organizations here on today's episode have, you know, done a lot of work in digesting the 880 page carbon plan filing that was made uh, a few weeks ago. And as you outlined, you know, there are, there are pros, there are cons. One thing that stands out to me is, is that the utility is proposing building new natural gas generation while at the same time trying to reduce emissions to that 2030 and 2050 target, uh, which seems uh, counterproductive or counterintuitive. Uh, but it is great to hear about the, the, the movement towards more transmission planning, which we know has been a big issue in eastern North Carolina, where, you know, a upwards of a gig and a half of of solar uh, have been held up due to a lack of transmission infrastructure out there. So that's a that's a big a big deal for renewables here in the state of North Carolina and South Carolina. All right. So Claire, I know your group, uh, the North Carolina Justice Center, has been very involved in conversations around clean energy over the past couple of years, especially with House Bill 951 last year and now with the proceedings at the North Carolina Utilities Commission. So can you talk a little bit more about what the North Carolina Justice Center would like to see come about as a result of the associated HB 951 proceedings at the commission? Sure. Um, House Bill 951, in our opinion, was not a well-crafted bill to really meet the needs of our state and um, especially the low-income ratepayers. In short, the utility company got a guarantee of ownership, one of new generation, a new way to recover rates that honestly, in, in like the multi-year rate plan that could really see rates increase over time with little oversight. And so that's, it's very concerning to us in many ways, but it is the bill that we have. Like we have to reduce 
carbon. There are ways to do it in lower cost than these four proposed plans that we've seen. Maggie, the two points you both brought up around the dynamics where they basically capped energy efficiency at 1% of net of opt-out, so kind of excluding the large industrials, have capped the assumptions about what energy efficiency can be done or demand reduction can be achieved. They've also capped the level of renewable integration that can be done each year. And when, when that happens, you see that you're left with having to build these natural gas power plants. And we think that this is a huge risk. It exposes customers, especially low-income customers, to price volatility. It also exposes them to when those natural gas power plants are no longer able to, like if they have to have a shortened lifespan, then ratepayers will have to pay for that cost when they're taken off early. I think the suggestion that they could sometime in the 2030s start burning green hydrogen is it's very hopeful thinking and we don't see that possible. I think it exposes customers to a lot of risk when in fact there's options now to really reduce load, to invest in renewables early up front that could help save costs and for everyone down the road. The other piece I'd say is the House Bill 951 had no provisions for people who are already struggling to pay their bill. There was nothing for low-income people in that. And so this carbon plan also speaks very little to the commitment for bill affordability for those folks. And we would like to see the commission approve a plan that has specific and measurable actions to address that. That's a that's a great point, Claire. And you know, I think something that's top of mind for a lot of us in this space is making sure that as we can continue to transition our generation resources on the grid, that it's an equitable transition. And it's already been proven and shown time and time again that levelized cost of energy, solar, and other renewables are some of the cheapest forms of generation, which to your point, uh, is to the benefit of the of, of the ratepayer and especially those that high, have high energy burdens uh, and those that are you know low and moderate income. So seemingly, you know, it would make sense in their interest to continue to build out additional renewable generation, which is a little interesting, right? To see those artificial caps that we've seen placed on on solar and offshore wind development as part of the the carbon plan. The carbon plan. It's attachment G, if y'all are interested. It has some very interesting different program proposals and ideas. But what's missing is the specific commitment. And it basically is like a plan to make a plan. And that is not sufficient. That's not sufficient for what this House Bill 951 is telling the utility and the commission to do. And it's not what we need for our planet. We have to be taking action on these issues now. And by avoiding the the critical pieces of like shaving, you know, shaving the edge or addressing demand and customer sided generation. These are critical to invest in now. And it's disappointing to see it be pushed off to some future event. And we would expect and hope those commitments can be made here and it will alter and really help reduce costs over time for every all the ratepayers. I think Claire covered a lot there. And I just want to chime in to emphasize a point she was making that I don't think a lot of customers realize that Duke, like many utilities, you know, across the country passes on all of its fuel costs directly to customers. So the more the utility relies on, uh, and, and that policy was actually set up when most utilities were burning coal and, you know, uranium and nuclear plants and the costs were not very volatile. Now we're in a situation where utilities are increasing their reliance on gas. And as we all have seen over the last year, year and a half, gas prices can be very volatile, especially due to unpredictable, you know, unforeseeable events, either, you know, across the country or around the world. And so I think that it's it's absolutely critical that the carbon plan is a tool to mitigate against utilities just further increasing and increasing increasing their reliance on gas and opening up customers to 
the risk of higher gas prices. I mean, we've already seen Duke's utility in Florida had to go back to its regulator several times last year to change the the rate structure um, with how it uh, recovers fuel costs, such that they're now spreading out the recovery of a single year of fuel costs over two years uh, because it was so much higher than they're expected. That that's only going to be the norm, you know, in Duke and the Carolinas if they're able to just uh, build more and more and more gas. And you know, the carbon plan piece of uh, House Bill 951, I think, is a key tool to really. Uh, you know, blunt those plans and protect those customers from that volatility. You bring up a good point around price volatility. And I know that, for example, coal is becoming pretty much obsolete. And and we'll talk a little bit about that here in a little bit. But catching a lot of news headlines recently over the past couple of weeks is the price volatility of coal as well, which has been, you know, fairly steady over the past 30, 40 years. Uh, But as a result of supply chain issues and, and mines closing down and and whatnot, uh, the the cost of coal has gone up significantly. Uh, But, you know, we've seen as part of HB 951 um, securitization to retire those plants early here in the state of North Carolina. But let's let's take a step back and and talk about kind of the the intermingling between North Carolina and South Carolina and what's going on in South Carolina. So for some level setting, Eddie, can you just tell us for, for South Carolina, is the state does the state have any sort of carbon or target mandates on the books that they need to achieve like North Carolina? And does the carbon plan process here in the state of North Carolina that was recently uh, filed, is that going to apply to any of the utility planning in South Carolina? And how does that work between the South Carolina utilities and and Duke's North Carolina utilities? Well, thanks, Matt. I think the first thing I'd like to do is distinguish between reality and politics. In reality, so North Carolina enacted this carbon goal, right? Which is great. 70% reduction by 2030. South Carolina doesn't have that. But I think what your listeners need to understand is that prior to North Carolina enacting that target, Duke had already filed a plan in South Carolina that cut carbon by 67%. So reaching a 70% goal itself is not that big of a lift. It's how you get there that's important in reality. And that's why you hear a lot of the things that Maggie and and, uh, Claire are talking about. You know, the devil is in the details. And it's a good thing that North Carolina has a carbon target. Unfortunately, switching over to the politics. South Carolina, uh, politically, and I think at the commission, legislators and commissioners, um, don't really want to be told what to do by North Carolina. And so North Carolina now now has a carbon target, and there's almost a knee-jerk reaction against that. And so the South Carolina Commission turned around and rejected Duke's preferred plan. And, you know, I'll say one other thing about the reality of these plans. It's not like North Carolina enacted a carbon target and suddenly Duke started trying to come up with a plan to meet a carbon target. Duke's plans, their two-year plans, their three in South Carolina, it's every three years. Those plans have been moving towards carbon reduction all along. So the, the bill in North Carolina, really, it's an incremental change on the issue that sounds like the main issue, which is carbon reduction. And where it's a major change is in all the other things that that are not really carbon reduction, but are in the new law, maybe to enable Duke to get there, but meeting all kinds of purposes. So for instance, multi-year rate planning, in other words, being able to get a decision in year one that there's gonna be rate increases based on future conditions over several years, that's not necessary to carbon reduction. It's not carbon reduction. It's in the bill, and it's a significant change from the past. And and so really, the carbon reduction goal is a blessing of something that was in progress. Um, and it's helpful because you don't have to argue about in North Carolina whether you're going to reduce carbon. In South Carolina, we haven't gotten over that hump yet. And I, I think, uh, you know, even there there are problems to solve here that are put into play by the North Carolina 
South Carolina dynamic. So just so, so people understand, Duke serves both states, and there's the costs are split between both states. So South Carolina ratepayers pay for North Carolina power plants, and North Carolina ratepayers pay for South Carolina power plants, and they all pay for all the power plants. So, you know, we're, we're bound together in that way. And we've already had a situation that went to the Supreme Court in South Carolina where South Carolina parties alleged that North Carolina law created a cost. And, the, and the, our commission said, well, North Carolina ratepayers should pay for that. We're not splitting it. And that went to the Supreme Court and, and they won. So I'm saying this carbon plan, there's a danger that it, it plays out in the same way and that this really haggling over some of the financial aspects of it could impede our ability to get to the goal that everybody shares here. Um, so that's a little bit of insight into the North Carolina, South Carolina dynamic right now. And we are you know, eager to work with the company or anybody else to try to solve that issue in South Carolina. And I think there's also opportunities that arise from South Carolina law to address some of the issues that have been raised here. So South Carolina has a pretty detailed integrated resource planning law, and it requires consideration of a wide range of things. And there's a forum there to, um, to try to find the best path. What our law says is that the utility has to pick the most reasonable and prudent plan. Well, you can't be prudent without taking into account risks. So one point I want to make is even though we don't have a carbon goal, um, as Maggie alluded to, you take a huge risk if you put your eggs in the natural gas basket. And, you know, people, I think, out there realize that natural gas prices are high right now and, and volatile due to international events, due particularly to Russia and the Ukraine. But I think what people don't generally understand is that we've entered a new phase in the long-term price of natural gas because a series of export facilities have been opened and are continuing to open um, in the U.S. Those have to be federally approved. And the gas price increases began before the Ukraine, and they're going to continue after the Ukraine. And so I think on both sides of the state line, we need to ensure that that situation is understood and included in the cost analysis. Which I think you know, raises concerns for folks with some of these proposed new natural gas plants that we might walk ourselves into a similar situation with natural gas as we're currently in with coal, where we have to resort to some sort of mechanism like securitization to retire those plants early as we continue to transition over to solar or offshore wind. But to the to the point of, of retiring early, uh, Duke has proposed with their remaining North Carolina Duke coal plants to retire those by 2030. And the Public Services Commission in South Carolina recently rejected that proposal so that South Carolina ratepayers did not have to help cover those costs to the point that you were talking about in which ratepayers in both states are helping to cover generation costs for all plants in both states. Am I correct in understanding the, the latest on that situation and any insight that you'd like to share there? Well, I, I think, you know, securitization, it's essentially, you know, it's a big word. It's basically refinancing. It's refinancing the costs that you haven't paid off yet for a coal plant built a long time ago. Um, so whenever you retire it, if you retire it before some accounting date, which is somewhat arbitrary, um, then uh, the company says, well, you haven't paid it all off yet. And if you securitize it, you, you issue bonds to finance that at a very low rate instead of paying a high rate of meaning paying, meaning the rate payers. One thing to understand is that the North Carolina law really limits the use of securitization. So it limits the ability to reduce costs in this overall transition. Um, and that question is still open in South Carolina. We don't have that type of securitization law and a number of legislators are looking at it. But it's one potential piece of the puzzle to help um, reduce the capital cost risk that you're talking about and to reduce 
ongoing costs on uh, you know an annual basis. I wanted to also just draw a linkage between the natural gas price volatility and the efficiency efforts that Claire was talking about. The reason that these new export facilities created a high gas price is because gas prices are very sensitive to the demand for gas. So when more people around the world want to buy our fracked gas, it drives the price up at home. And the flip side of that is if you reduce demand, you're not only buying less gas, you're reducing the price of gas. And with regard to the combined cycle plant, if you build new power plants, you're not just going to use gas that's expensive due to export. You're going to drive up the cost of the gas even more. So there's a feedback loop here that, that is affected by both building gas plants or in the alternative, reducing demand. And the thing I'd like to say about reducing demand, if we were not talking about a utility company and carbon reduction, if we were in any other business, any other industry at all, and you were told you can only make a 1% difference per year, you'd be laughed out of the room, right? It's only because our heads are buried in this particular utility regulated space that we even accept the concept of discussing 1% a year without laughing at it. Now, there are a lot of constraints, but both Carolinas have the ability to do a better job of reducing um, electricity usage, not by giving, making people turn up their thermostats and sit in the heat and, you know, have heat strokes, but by making the buildings more efficient. And we've, we've got a real problem that when we go out to save energy, for the first thing we do is excuse all the people that use the most energy. So in both states, the large industries have bowed out of these efficiency programs, and they do a lot of efficiencies on their own. Um, but the 1% target is a problem, and the broader efficiency impediments are a problem. And, and they bear upon the natural gas prices that everybody pays through their electric bill. So Maggie, I'd like to circle back around to one of the overarching concerns regarding the carbon plan is filed by Duke, which is the fact that you mentioned earlier that uh, 75% of the proposed scenarios do not meet the legislatively mandated carbon reduction goal of 70% by 2030. This seems to fly right in the face of the original intent of the bill. So what's the likelihood that the Utilities Commission would provide any leeway to the utility on timing to reach those carbon reduction targets? Thanks, Matt. Um, so, I mean, I won't I won't say what the the commission necessarily will or or won't do. I'll just remind folks that um, House Bill 951 does this set this up as the commission's plan, and you know there is language in the bill uh, that allows the commission to you know under certain circumstances delay that interim target somewhat. Um, but I mean, personally, I think it's just you know, you don't want to start out behind in anything. This is our first carbon plan. And, you know, Duke has presented uh, one portfolio where it thinks, you know, we can make this uh, target, we can meet this target. So we, uh, as SACE, um, as we're co-intervening and, and we're going to be working on an alternative plan that will be uh, filed with the commission in July, I think others are working on alternative plans too. I mean, it's it's pretty clear we have a lot of options to be able to meet this this target by 2030. It's what's been really clear in both this analysis and lots of uh, similar analysis is that what we do in the near term is really important. And if we start out assuming you know we're going to delay by two or four years, we're not we're going to lose that sense of urgency and we're not going to make changes starting next year. Um, and, and it's going to lead to sort of a slow walk. And there's absolutely benefits that will flow to customers that I don't think are captured in Duke's analysis in that early action, um, especially around clean energy resources, around let's, you know, let's ramp up energy efficiency. I mean, you can't, I agree with what has already been said on energy efficiency that, you know, 1%, the, the, the target that Duke has set out is... Um, 
laughably low and we can do more, but you also just can't turn a switch and have instantly more energy efficiency next year. It does take time to, to design the programs, set up the programs, fund them, get the marketing out um, and, and get people participating. So let's go ahead and, and start that now so we can be on our best foot to meet that 2030 goal. And Claire, the, the North Carolina Justice Center works directly with a number of groups that may not be directly involved or are formal interveners like SACE at the North Carolina Utilities Commission. So what are you hearing from your network about the recently filed carbon plan and what needs to happen moving forward to ensure we reach 70% reduction by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050? Sure. One of the things, I, many of the issues have come up that concern around no new gas. I think we've sufficiently covered that conversation here around price volatility, futures, sunk costs. Um, but the other piece, I mean, would also be around some of the, like the small module nuclear and really grounding this plan in solutions that we can do now. Because I think the carbon plan depends on many of the scenarios we're counting on um, technology that isn't in place yet and is likely to have high costs and delays. And this is not only for, like, we are in a climate crisis and the impacts of climate change are being felt by our state. And, you know, we do need to act now. And so waiting in, on for solutions to come for some future imaginary solution, we can't wait. And so I think that that's really one of the things that I've heard from groups over and over again is, is acknowledging the sense of urgency. And, it, and I think part of the other aspect is looking at maximizing the customer-sided renewables, demand, and reducing demand. And I'll be frank with y'all, if, if, if I thought that if we thought that like Duke could make more money with customer-sided renewables and reducing demand then you'd probably see a very different plan. But the fact is, is House Bill 951 actually it preserved that incentive for the utility to build, build, build. And we're seeing plans that reflect that. Yeah, I think just adding on that, absolutely, Claire, and, you know, least cost and lower risk and also improves reliability. I mean, I think that electric reliability and resilience of the electricity grid has been a topic of, you know, public conversation much more over the last, uh, you know, few years than it ever has been in my lifetime that I recall. So I think that's like a big, you know, that's a big thing to be uh, a part of this whole conversation. And the more that folks have, you know, those those customer focused solutions that, that Claire's talking about, energy efficiency, demand response, customer sided renewables, uh, microgrids, storage. I mean, these are all tools in the toolbox. They're ready to be deployed now. Um, I mean, we've seen what can happen when we rely on, you know, too much on the centralized grid. We rely too much on natural gas in a in a given system. And, and that can be dangerous, um, especially as we're facing more and more extreme weather uh, due to climate change. So absolutely. You know, Matt, I think I should say one thing from the South Carolina perspective about small nukes. Everything Claire said was true. I mean, the, the concept that we would delay meeting climate goals to wait for Duke to do a small nuke when they're North Carolina and South Carolina businesses that have clean energy, you know, commercially available products right now. And they could they could be implementing and not uh, waiting to see if nukes materialize. Of all states, South Carolina, you know, we tried to go back to the future, to the early 80s, with the DeLorean and the nuclear plant, and it went terribly. It was a $9 billion hole. It, was so, it went so poorly that people don't even remember that Duke blew half a billion dollars on a license for a nuclear plant they'll never build. Like, that was... That mistake wasn't even big enough to notice next to what was going on at VC Summer. And it's about that same issue is about to blossom again over in Georgia. So I can't imagine South Carolina regulators approving a plan to go first on small nukes. Like maybe wait a decade and see if anybody else builds one. But 
Duke, this is an issue. Duke does have a lot of creative people, but this is because they're headquartered in North Carolina, they can't quite hear what's happening in South Carolina. And this is one where they're being tone deaf. I'm glad you mentioned that because that leads really well into our next question, uh, which is talking about market structure and the integration into utility resource planning. And I think as most folks know, the, the nuclear issue in South Carolina was really the impetus that led to a bill that passed in 2020 to create a uh, committee to study market structure in South Carolina. And I think that would have a potential huge impact on, on planning out generation resources into the future for the state. So what's the latest status of, of that committee and their findings? And how could this potentially impact carbon reduction planning in South Carolina? Well, for the benefit of people in North Carolina, it's not merely a study. It's a study that ends in legislative recommendations. And with that, you know, knowing that the legislature begins to meet first thing next year, the schedule of the committee is to meet multiple times through the summer to be able to reach recommendations in time for the next legislative session. So those, you know, there's the next three meetings are already on the calendar from now through August. And this, you know, I, I always say if you scratch below the surface and look at every kind of reform that's happened around the country for public utilities, one of two things is behind them. Either an oil and gas price spike or a nuclear cost overrun. Those are the two things that make people suddenly say, wait, we should do things differently. And you know, we're having that, we're having both of them again right now. Um, we're, you know, back in 1978, it's time for PURPA number two. And some things that we, you know, foresaw that in 20, really 2016, before the nuclear project was even abandoned. But when it, when it was, we said, you know, the state should look at being part of a regional market. And actually, a lot has changed even since 2016. So back then, if you looked at a map, some parts of the U.S. had an RTO and some didn't. And what's changed since then is the Southeast is the last place with no structured wholesale market. The other thing that's changed, um, we've already talked about it. Back then, fracking had fully taken place, but the export facilities weren't on board yet. So we had these artificially low gas prices. Now we're back into high gas prices. And if you went back to 2016, solar procurement, it was a question. Batteries were somewhere over the horizon. The technology's changed dramatically. So I think part of our challenge is to, you know, I know we're, we're focusing on market reform here, but it, how do you have a structure that actually reacts to what's happening in the real world? It's not just insulated from the risk of investment decisions. And that concept is, is attractive to South Carolina legislators that instead of just relying on one single company that makes 30 year long investments and one government agency to approve them and then walk away and let the ratepayer pay for it, that we would have some type of market structure in place where people win or lose based on whether they're taking account of the reality around them. We hope to have some reasonable cost estimates by this fall of uh, what that would entail. And my guess is that South Carolina can't go it alone. We need North Carolina or Georgia. And so um, I, I encourage the, the North Carolina folks to pay attention and join in. The, the more the merrier. Um, if, if I can add, uh, I think what Eddie's saying is, is great. And I mean, it's the business model for these electric utilities is over a hundred years old. As Claire said earlier, you know, the, the incentive remains just to build, 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 and to build more of the same, which um, as Eddie points out, hasn't always served us very well in the past. And so I think it's absolutely a great time to take a look and, and see if this business model is still effective uh, for our utilities in this uh, region as a whole, including North Carolina, um, and see if there is, you know, what sort of reforms we can make 
that align with the reality we have, the technologies we have, uh, the fact that electricity is now, you know, seen as a, a basic need. Um, the ways that we use electricity has changed and is continuing to change as we electrify uh, buildings and transportation. So let's make sure, you know, we're able to capture all of that and we're not stuck uh, in the early 1900s. And I believe currently there's an RTO study bill sitting at the North Carolina General Assembly. Uh, we'll see if that gets any traction and, and moves forward. Uh, but Eddie, we'll have to have you back on to provide additional updates uh, from that committee and the study that's taking place down there to see how that continues to progress over the coming months and years. So moving forward, I'm curious what the utility generation planning process might look like, knowing that we've got a few different planning processes now in place and in progress starting with the integrated resource planning process, which the utility files every two years uh, here in North Carolina, um, which has traditionally been the way that Duke and others have mapped out future generation. And now we have the carbon plan process, which seems to provide a roadmap for future generation as well. So do we envision that these two processes might be intermingled in the future? They're already totally intermingled, right? A carbon plan is an integrated resource plan with a carbon constraint. Yeah, and I think, I, I think, and and that's what Duke is proposing too in their um, in their proposal to to shift their IRP, their North Carolina IRP mandates um, off until twenty twenty four. The next time there'll be a look at the carbon plan, and and I have some mixed thoughts about this. I, I can see pros and cons either way. Um, I think there's definitely you know a a regulatory burden to doing an IRP of the the size and scope um, that Duke requires essentially every year for for three years straight. You know that that that's you know maybe the the juice isn't worth the squeeze on that one. But I think you know let's let's be clear that market prices change. Um, you know things change. We'll see what comes out of this South Carolina RTO study bill that could change how uh, you know Duke operates its utilities and and whatnot so you know let's make sure that, that we're able to look at uh the the current planning assumptions often enough um for the the carbon plan slash irp uh to to make sense i mean we've talked a lot about energy efficiency and um renewable energies as lower cost and i really want to acknowledge that there currently is there still is an affordability crisis for the lowest income people and rate payers. And these are folks who are paying eight, 12% of their income a year going to their electric bill. And they're sitting at home. Like we talk to folks all the time who are like, do I pay my cell phone bill, food, medicine, transportation, electric bill. And they're having to make really tough decisions. And there is a role for targeted and effective like whole home retrofit so folks can substantially lower their energy use and make those bills more affordable. Um, and there was just a provision that I saw in, in the carbon plan that kind of raised a red flag. And I'll use this platform here, which was the idea of expanding low income energy efficiency programs to 300% of the federal poverty level. And we work, I don't know any low income program that sets 300% of the federal poverty level as its threshold for eligibility. That's, that's quite high. And the concern is that, you know, folks who between 200% and 300%, they, they may be struggling, but they also may be, you know, easier to access with programs. Their homes may be in a different condition, their availability, you know, information and Funding going to them would take away from the people who are most in need, who are critically getting disconnected month to month and are receiving assistance from their churches, family members, the you know, federal and state aid. And so I think that this is a conversation that the Justice Center is an issue we're watching. We want to have this conversation. It's, it really came out of left field and all the discussions we've had. And so we want to keep working with Duke and the commission so that programs that are serving these folks um, 
are really targeted to the people that need it most. And, and that's going to be essential as all the different parts that are going on. We want to make sure that people who already can't afford this aren't, aren't bearing an un, a disproportionate burden of this transition. I would like to thank each of you uh, so much for joining in this conversation today to cover all angles of the carbon plan. I think each of you provided a really unique perspective that we probably haven't heard about the plan yet. So I'm, I'm excited for this episode to come out uh, and for our listeners to give it a listen. So thank you all for joining us on today's episode. Oh my gosh, this is so fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. This has been great. My key takeaway from today's episode is the fact that Duke's plan only includes one scenario of the four proposed that would actually meet the legislatively mandated 2030 carbon reduction deadline. The proposed extension of deadlines are due to technologies yet to hit the market and the gravitation towards generation that allows the utility to have full ownership, building out capital-intensive projects and collecting a rate of return for the shareholders. It's obvious that what was proposed in this plan was done so for the best interest of the shareholder and not the ratepayer. As was mentioned, we have the commercially viable technologies available today that provide stability and predictability in pricing related to fuel costs and already beat fossil generation in terms of levelized cost of energy. So make sure to tune in as we'll be providing another update come July 16th when NCSEA and other partners provide alternative modeling to Duke's proposal. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 71 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we really would love your help in growing the podcast by giving us a rating on whatever platform you are listening in from. All right. That's it. See y'all later.